0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com
1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. The plant-based food space has taken off as one of the fastest growing subsectors of the food business. In the past few years, we've seen the rise of plant-based dairy replacements and meat alternatives with a number of new startups launching innovative products in this exciting new industry. To many consumers, this explosion of plant based products was a pleasant surprise. But to Chris Kerr, my guest on this week's episode, bringing plant based into the mainstream has been his mission for over a decade. Chris serves as the investment manager for New Crop Capital, a specialized private venture capital fund that invests in entrepreneurs whose products or services replace foods derived from conventional animal agriculture. Providing guidance in the first round of funding for these companies, New Crop Capital is helping to revolutionize the food system from the inside out. Before coming to New Crop, Chris worked with the Humane Society of the United States, helping them manage their investments into rising plant-based companies. In fact, Chris played a key role in helping Deya Cheese clinch their first distribution deal with Whole Foods. With years of experience investing in plant-based food companies and coaching new entrepreneurs, Chris talks openly and candidly about what it takes to start a food company and provides unique insights into what to look for in partners to help grow a new food business. If you want to know more about what has happened behind the scenes to make many of the products you know and love show up on shelves, or if you're an aspiring entrepreneur yourself, you won't want to miss this interview. Chris Kerr, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
2: It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Chris, you've uh, been focused on mission, um, mission-driven mission investment now for several years. You started off doing that at the Humane Society of the United States back in uh, 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us more about what work you did there. What is mission-driven investment and how did HSUS get involved in it to begin with?
2: Well, so I, you know, I come from an entrepreneurial background and I've been doing, you know, startups since I was quite young, actually. Um, When I became vegan in 2002, um, it was after meeting my wife who had been vegan at that point for 14 years, um, we, you know, I became an animal person, you know, and, and so as I started kind of getting out of existing investments that I had had, startups that I'd been working in that had nothing to do with, with any type of mission, um, my wife and I both decided that we wanted to take our, our funds and start putting them in the future from here on out towards things that would actually help society in some way or another, and clearly animals were a forefront for us. Um, so this was 2007, and I put in a call to um, my friends down at the HSUS, and I said, look, I'm, I'm looking to do something that I can deploy my money in a way that will, will benefit um, animals. And um, they said, this was Wayne Pacelli he said, we're not we're looking for the same thing. Can you come down and let's talk about it? So they actually offered me a job when I went down there. I wasn't expecting it. This was uh, February of 2007. And I called my wife and I said, um, "Kirsty I um, had a great meeting with HSU as they actually uh, offered me a job and they want me to come down and you know work it, work for them down there. You know, The truth is, if you look at these organizations, they oftentimes are sitting on a ton of money uh, that can be really just being put into mutual funds and everything else. And while they'll spend their operating budget every year on their mission, the actual financing behind it isn't going to the mission at all. It's just sitting in mutual funds or T-bills or whatever it may be. And and so the truth is there's always been this certainly collectively massive asset that's been underutilized, which is capital. Um, that can, in our particular case, be applied towards things that can have a mission impact. So in, particularly in something like food, uh, there's a lot of opportunities to invest in places like food, in alternatives to animal testing, in fashion. There's a lot of places where animals play a role. So my thesis with, with the HSUS at the time was, let's look at all of the industries where animals are being abused in some form or another and see if we can't create solutions for consumers Rather than trying to perpetually um, hit people over the head with the with the moral baseball bat, let's just give them what they're looking for. Um, and, and and this was Wayne's thesis as well. Uh, and luckily, we he and I were very aligned with this, which is you know if you give people um, kind of the same product, but but that doesn't hurt animals, they're likely they're going to choose the more humane product. You know, but it ha- but that parity is really really matters. And so we started out uh, looking at different ways that we could do this. Um, One of the problems that I ran into is that there's so many different ways that uh, animals are um, um, taken advantage of that it was too many industries. Uh, And the truth is what I loved was food. Mm -hmm. And all I really wanted to do was work on food. Um, I had at that point been vegan for five years. I was hungry. I wanted a grilled (laughs) cheese sandwich. I mean, all of those things, it was really, I mean, it was true. I really wanted to find solutions for myself um the one tool that i had i wasn't a writer i wasn't an artist i wasn't a musician um i wasn't a scientist the one tool i had was that i knew how to work with companies i knew how to work with startups and so that's what i did Mm -hmm. um the first company that i that i spent most of my time with um, and i really focused on was daya daya had just come out of the founder's oven Um, we had a very funny experience where we were testing daya for the very first time in a in a law firm in vancouver and they and it was a really fancy law firm way up in a high rise Mm -hmm. and they brought in a toaster oven and um we fired that thing up we made grilled cheese sandwiches it was fantastic we smoked the heck out of the place Mm -hmm. and so we're trying to get we're trying to open up the windows to get the smoke out of this high rise and uh we thought we're gonna set the fire alarms off but it was the best vegan it was the best grilled cheese sandwich i'd had in in, in that point five years and Tal Rona was with me and we both said, this needs to get to market right away. You have no idea mm-hmm. what the pent-up demand for this is. So that's where I learned about pent-up demand and how important that is when you're looking at market opportunities. The funny thing was nobody else knew it was there. We, we had to convince investors that indeed mm-hmm. there were people and Which waiting. year was that? When this the... would have been 2008. Okay. Yep. Wow. Um, and feel free to Cut me off anytime. Yeah, yeah. I tend to ramble. Um, and so, in 2008, uh, we're trying to convince investors again. The markets had just collapsed. There was no money out there for investments, and we're trying to tell food specialists. These weren't vegans. These were people mm-hmm. who, who understood food, the food world, um, that there's an enormous market for this, and no, nobody really believed them. Uh, but a couple of people did, and they managed to piecemeal together a little bit of money, and um, we took. Uh, some people that we knew th- between me and Chad, uh, Chad Sarno and Derek Sarno and, uh, tall Rona, we got the product to, to the whole foods market. Um, we actually, I, I took the cheese to Chad Sarno. He said, if my four year daughter, four year old daughter will eat this, uh, I'll take it to whole foods. And she ate it. She loved it to this day. She still loves uh day of cheese. <laughs> um, and that's how it got into whole foods. The entire gatekeeper was at the, at the helm of, um, one little four-year-old girl. Wow! Yeah.
1: <laughs> and in terms of HSUS's role here, you were um, channeling money as investment into companies like they are back in 2008. We
2: hadn't started yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the truth is, we were. It was a pretty big ask. We were going to a board and saying we want you to do really, really risky investments. And this is a board that's. They're, they're, one of their jobs. Certainly, the financial committee is to protect their money. Yeah. And I was telling them um, don't be so protective, you know, let's look at how we can change, change, just take a little bit of the money. Don't Mm -hmm. take all of it, but take a little bit of it and direct it in this way. Um, and so Daya was the first one that I was able to point to and say, I told you so, Mm -hmm. right? Because it worked, Mm -hmm. it worked really, really well. And obviously after a $325 million sale, nine years later, um, that's clear, but it really broke the mold. um, in consumer behavior as well. So we're able to point to not just the financial return but the fact that there's a, commu- a consumer behavior shift. And that's what I was ultimately going for, was sustainable consumer behavioral change. Um, it's easy to get somebody to go vegan for a Monday, mm-hmm. and maybe a week, and maybe a month, but try doing it for 3, 4, 15 years, and now all of a sudden you realize it's it's uh, a perpetual job of keeping that, that mindset uh, where food can satisfy that. Mm-hmm. So that, that started the ball rolling. I started working with a bunch of companies. Um, Field Roast was another one. Uh, we had already been uh, promoting Gardein pretty heavily back then, helping them get into schools, uh, helping them get into cafeterias, and the HSUS was really crucial with that. So the whole investment thesis really relied on a couple of things. One is um, vegans are maniacal about their food. They, will, they have what's called enormous price elasticity. You're, they're willing to pay a lot for something that makes them happy. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, will travel great distances, but the most important thing was they were willing to talk very, very, very mm-hmm. loudly about their findings. And this was before social media. Yeah. Uh, so at the time, blogs were just coming out. And um, we were able to actually tap into some really influentials who were willing to blog about um, companies yeah. like Deia. And that, that really put him on the map so that when the product showed up in Whole Foods, people knew to buy it, right. you know. Uh, and so, so HSU has started following this. So we helped, um, you know, Beyond Meat was one of the ones that we worked with mm-hmm. early on. Ethan Brown and I go back to the earliest days of that. Uh, he's just been a stellar, stellar um, example of, mm-hmm. of how a good entrepreneur can really raise a company from from ground on up and keep the mission in focus. And he's been a, a real... Um, a beacon for, I think, a lot of people in this space. Um, and then we looked at other things, you know, alternatives to animal testing was another thing we invested in. Veggie Grill was an investment that we made. Um, anything that would would basically give us uh, something to point to that, you know, that we were clearly helping to to influence um, a different type of, a yeah. different, different way forward. So
1: this is like the first wave, I think, of um, companies offering vegan products that That's even right. I heard of. I mean, I've not been eating this way for that long only for Mm -hmm. the last seven years but this goes back even before that and um so when i you know for example me as a consumer back in 2010 when i gave up my meat loving ways Mm -hmm. um there were products like Dea and gardeen and others to to turn to and that was still you know not so many choices compared to what we have now so you spent seven years at Mm -hmm. uh, hsus um and I guess you kind of learned about the food industry while you were there.
2: Well, I you did. hadn't, didn't have any bat, prior background. I knew nothing background. about it. I was in the medical waste business before this. <laughs> now, I, like, I've, been, I've been involved with about maybe a dozen companies over mm-hmm. my life. Um, but food was just something, everybody eats food. You know, Everybody has an interest in food. And to a, large, to a large degree, everybody's an investor in food in one form or another. Right. Um, you, know, you talk about kind of the different waves. There's, there's pre-2006 which is what I would define as kind of the first generation. And that probably goes actually back to the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Where you've got this kind of... Um, you can kind of picture the person who was who was buying these types of products back then and they had what I would consider great elasticity when it comes to food parity. You know, what you might call a, a veggie burger in 1992. It's going to be very different than what you might accept today. Yeah. Uh, the next wave... So that, And that actually ended with a, with a very big mergers and acquisitions spree that ended in 2006. And that was when Haynes Celestial and companies like that were, were acquiring. That actually stopped innovation. That mergers and acquisitions period, that M&A activity, basically found homes for companies, but they did, wouldn't reinvest in, in R&D. Mm-hmm. The next way we had a pause there for a year during the collapse, uh, and then in then 2008 day it really opened it up again. But the other thing that happened was Whole Foods came about. Mm-hmm. Whole Foods is really important in this entire story because Whole Foods is its own little incubator. You take a national company with enormous buying power but is willing to put you into three stores in Manhattan, mm-hmm. that makes an entrepreneur, that gives you a foothold into something that can be great. So we would look at business plans, you know, from 2007 to 2010, we look at business plans where all they really cared about was getting into Whole Foods National. Mm-hmm. But they would start by getting into one little region in Manhattan or one little region in San Francisco. And that that created thousands of entrepreneurs. And that's where Amy's and Annie's and all of these companies that really got their, their foothold, it all started there. Silk is another good example, really got its start there. Um, that was the trend i thought we were on when i took the job at new crop capital i thought okay we're just going to kind of continue this path but two years ago something else shifted Mm -hmm. which um part of it was um hampton creek and in the money that it had received in silicon valley but silicon valley when they started paying attention to this it forced um innovation to to be the leading component Mm -hmm. and with that we have a whole new generation and this is the most exciting time. Ever. Yeah.
1: Let's, sure. let's back up a little bit. You sure. mentioned new crop before we, we get into where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you were at HSUS for seven years and then tell us how new crop came about. Sure. And, um, because that's fairly recent, yeah. but, um, I want to know that first. And then I, I want to kind of trace this. I love this train that i thought you're on where you're talking about the, the phases and the, then the, evolution of this industry. Sure. And we're probably at the most exciting time right now, but new yeah. crop first.
2: Yeah. So new crop is not my idea. Um, uh, Nick Cooney and Bruce Friedrich are the trustees of new crop. And, and I think what they did was they, they certainly in, uh, encaptured the thesis that I had kind of worked out with the HSUs in 2007, but they actually found the money to actually back it. Hmm. And you know, the 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 real thesis is if you combine so when I went to work for the HSUS, there's two components. One was money, but the other was actually access to expertise and influencers. And the HSUS brings that. You know, they've got all these different departments that can actually help me tell help an investor. Uh, determine if an investment is good. So if I wanted to know whether or not I should go into an alternative animal testing company, I could actually go to that department at the HSUS and they could tell me, yep, this is the good one, right? When we started looking at um, the broadness of that, it was just too much. It was too hard to be agile. And so what we really needed was, um, at that point, you know, by the time I had been, new crop had, had been starting to form, um, I had already had a pretty good understanding of of who the influencers were so when bruce and nick came to me and they said look we have a we have a donor that's willing to put money into a trust uh and that this trust is really there to grease the wheels in 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 innovation and commerce with the focus on on um hitting the largest swath of animal suffering that we can um for me i'm like well i know i know exactly where to go mm-hmm. right i know exactly who to call i already had all the contacts and so it was a real fortuitous moment it happened in, in washington dc i happened to be down there my wife um, is a district leader for the humane society and i was down there for a, a conference and bruce and nick um called me over and they said you know would you run this fund and i said i don't know i don't want to run for work for another non and he goes no no this is this is different and uh and I thought that we only had $5 million to invest. It in. goes, no, we have $5 million a year. And I said, oh, that's much more interesting. I still passed on it. Wow. And um, I went home from that, and my one of my beloved, I have 11 cats now, but at the time I had seven cats, and one of them went missing. And we live out in the woods in, in Woodstock, New York. And uh, I literally walked through the woods, through the wilderness. Um, I think it was a total of eight days. I can't remember, um, looking for my one cat, one animal. And it was devastating, devastating. And I, and during that, I mean, it was literally hours and hours of walking in the middle of the night all day long looking for this cat who came home, by the way, her name is Pei-Pei. Oh, good to know that. Yep. Um, But I thought to myself, I'm willing to do this Mm -hmm. for one animal. Why on earth would I not be willing to help a, a, a project that could actually help billions of animals. So I called Bruce and Nick. I said, you know what? I am interested in this. So let's, let's try this for 12 to 18 months. Let's just make sure that it gets off to a good start. So their thesis was exactly uh, the same thesis that I had at the HSUS, which was let's use innovation and commerce to solve problems. Let's create solutions. But for those times where nobody else is willing to take a risk, we should take that risk. As a trust, we have no limited partners. We can invest for a hundred years. We have no Um, geographical boundaries Uh, we can go anywhere in the world and find the best products Uh, most venture capital funds aren't set up that way Mm -hmm. they really do have limits and um, one of which is time frame you know you have to generally invest and get out of an investment within a 10-year period we didn't have that so we could actually really look to the long long horizon so you had a chance to even
1: uh, redefine what a, a venture capital firm would do in this space. Yep. Um, because, you know, that has also changed a lot in the last few years where you have everyone in the big food space from <clears throat> sorry Tyson to Cargill to Kellogg's and General Mills that now have uh, their own venture arms um, that are putting a lot of money often into plant based foods and vegan companies or mm-hmm. uh, ones that are providing natural better <laughs> foods. What does New Crop bring in different than than these other firms? Besides the fact that you know you're kind of you're smaller in the sense that you, I think your fund's about twenty five million. Twenty five, yeah. But you don't have those restrictions that traditional VCs do. How does New Crop now stack up versus all these big giants? Um, And you know why would um and I guess we're kind of moving to the space we're in right now, where there's a lot of money going around mm-hmm. suddenly, yeah. and there's a lot of buzz around um, mm-hmm. vegan food. Mm-hmm. What does New Crop bring unique um, to companies in the space?
2: So when you look at investments, there's, so first of all, every venture capital fund, their number one um, defining value is what's called deal flow, mm-hmm. who comes to you and why. Um, so we have a unique deal flow and a couple reasons. Um, the reason that companies come to us, uh, is that we know how to reach early adopters. And if you want to prove a company, so every, every investment is tied to what's called a de-risking event, right? So what makes this, what either makes this company valuable, what took the risk away, what Mm -hmm. makes it more likely to be a good investment. And one of the most important things about that is early adoption. And because we've been focused on this so long and because our, um, animal protection world is really they really pay attention i mean they're really a smart group of people to be honest uh they know how to look for things and they know how to talk about things uh, they know how to propagate their findings as i like to say so we were able to bring that we brought that focus that nobody else really had so i describe us as we really are at the tip of the spear in this particular space like if you are i don't care how big you are you could be tyson or general mills or anybody else if you want to know what is the most innovative Thing happening in this space, it's us. It's not just us, I might add. You know, Good Food Institute is an enormous part of this. Uh, they bring a lot to the table. Uh, in the same way that what I wanted HSUS to do, GFI was set up specifically to do. Mm-hmm. So while I was the, the, the fly and the ointment uh, for a lot of departments at HSUS, um, they all had their charge. The last thing I needed was me, you know, globbing onto to their free time GFI is set up specifically for this. So I was able to use them as our others, I might add um, in order to help, help me bring value to that. So the reason that companies like Tyson or anybody else might look to us is because we are paying attention
1: and paying attention to the consumer as well as where the innovation is happening. That's I mean, exactly I, right. yeah. both of it That's right. right. Because um, you know, it's very easy to get distracted by, um, by some of the trends and the reports versus understanding what a consumer in the space is looking for um, and how to kind of tap into that. Plus you kind of um, you're right about the space being very collaborative also Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it is um, everyone's driven by the same goal and is Mm -hmm. happy to work together, which makes it unique. Now, of course, as we we grow and evolve now things are going to change slightly. So let's, let's get to that. I mean, I'll give you my perspective on this. When I, um, was uh, thinking of starting One Green Planet. My my kind of thinking of... And I mentioned this before, maybe on another episode, but my thought process was fairly simple. Um, how could we increase demand for these um, products if mm-hmm. you get more people to choose the food that I was eating? Mm-hmm. Um, someone who, for the most part of my... Most of my life thought I would never... Um, choose vegan food or never be vegan. Um, but I was suddenly eating it and enjoying it and felt like I was eating better than ever before. So if you could just convince more people, um, using the right combination of, um, you know, the latest in social media and content and everything else, Mm -hmm. we could help increase that demand. Now, of course, many other people were doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. HSUS primarily. And then by Increasing the demand, we could shift the consumer and then automatically supply would follow because yeah. one says demand the supply. Yeah. I learned that much in economics. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, that's sort of what's happened in the last few mm-hmm. years, right? We've, um, as you said earlier, the initial early adopters are the hardcore vegans, mm-hmm. are the ones who eat this way all the time. Mm-hmm. But the difference about the vegan consumer, the, the hardcore one, um, versus the flexitarians and the others maybe, is that they are very clear about what they want. You've said all the benefits of, of being that way, price, they're more open to price, elasticity, mm-hmm. um, but they're also ambassadors. Yeah. Um, and I think that is something no one could have predicted mm-hmm. in, in the food space, that you mm-hmm. have um, a consumer group that will not just become a consumer they won't just buy a product they become a rabid fan i mean i'm yeah. wearing a beyond meat t-shirt i today. noticed so, thank you very much so i'm amongst them right yep. so you know we believe in the companies that we support and yep. we buy and um and then we tell everyone we want to know mm. that's one thing though could you have us imagine like looking back at say 2008 even 2010 could you have imagined that that was then going to turn into what's happened now so let's kind of fast forward yeah. To where we are in the last two years, you kind of mm-hmm. mentioned that earlier, and I and I paused. Mm-hmm. Um, something changed, and yeah. what's contributing to this buzz? Yes, one is the demand's increasing. Yeah, what what are you? What is your take on this? My take is it's it's more information and it's media and it's social media that has driven this. It's mm-hmm. access to information of mm-hmm. course, access to products through Whole yeah. Foods as well. What is your thesis?
2: Well, I think that's exactly right. So I think it's a confluence of several things. First of all, um, it's not vegans that are driving it. Mm-hmm. Vegans are important, but it, but if you got, if your child, day was successful not because of vegans. Vegans helped, but it was actually the mother whose child was allergic to dairy and wanted to have a pizza, that's actually what drove it. It was the, It was, you never know like what, people's choice like what's driving their choice but there's lots of things as it turns out if i'm somebody who's suffering from high cholesterol i probably have a pretty good vested interest in why i might want to think about changing my diet right so there's lots of different things that came into that what i believe changed was two things um one uh, so price, taste, and convenience, right? Those are the mm-hmm. three things that we really focus on. But convenience was a, was a, was arguably the most important one, black or white. If it's in front of you, you'll buy it. If it's not, you can't. So Whole Foods helped with with that a great deal. The other was transparency or proliferation or propaga- propagation. So if you look at uh, social media, uh, the ability to find good food now, vegan or otherwise, but really vegan food, that is really, I mean, Facebook... All that social media, look at how many people take pictures of their food, it's on fire. Mm-hmm. And and so the, your ability to find out information and gather data about what you can do and what you can eat is helpful. But again, if it's not in your store, you can't buy it, right? So you can you can have, you know the taste is there and you know the price is there, but you can't get it. Now proliferation is starting to take place. So you've got um, all through Europe, the demand is just insane. All through the United States, it's growing. India. Brazil, Mexico, it's all growing with this kind of pent-up demand that that whether it was there all along or not, I don't know. Um, you know there's latent demand and there's pent-up demand. The two are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but pent-up demand is somewhat recognizable. Latent demand is usually you don't see it. And so Daya kind of brought up what might be latent demand. Like nobody knew that it was there. Pent-up demand, you know that it's there and it's being unfulfilled. Um, and right now we're in the pent-up demand world where you know products Beyond Meat is a perfect example of this the pent up demand for the Beyond Burger is astounding I get calls every week for people asking me how can I get to Beyond Meat because I want to export it to name mm-hmm. the country everybody wants it so that shift is clearly because that there's a knowledge about Beyond Meat existing right? and so you know it's there that clearly came through social media in some form or another or at least media in some form or another that's paramount for sure Uh, Right now, there's a big catch-up going on. And so most of the investments that are coming in now, part of it's for R&D and innovation. A lot of it's going to what's called CapEx or capital expenditures, which is just building production capacity. Um, Again, consumers are winning across the board because the more these products come to market, the more they have to compete with other products, which have to make them better. The first company I invested in with... um, um, or that I helped with uh, HSUS was Daya, and the last one was Miyoko's Kitchen, right? <laughs> and so you've got these two kind of, uh, one end of the expect uh, two, two different ends of, this, of the spectrum as far as the high-end cheese and kind of the everyday cheese. Uh, and the truth is there's a lot of game in the middle there. Mm. And um, all ships are rising in this space right now. And that's why one of the reasons I think a lot of people are collaborative is that uh, it's becoming easier to find the products because there's more of them in this space. So I think that that's the that's the trajectory we're on now. The other thing that happened is millennials were born, and I have to tell you that has changed um, that has changed a lot of the world. Just uh, they are um, I have two pet names for them. One is um, uh, uh, Generation H two O because they're always carrying water. They're Generation Hydration. Uh, and then the other is their generation illumination because they are really enlightened, right? Yeah. They really are open to this idea of that veganism is a bad word or yeah. that, uh, that they should be thinking about the environment or anything else. And so we, I really look at them as um, what has really become a catalyst for supermarkets to actually really change how they buy. And so you look at you look at supermarkets around the globe. Tesco is a good example. You know, Derek Sarno is now working on a project with Tesco. That's just going to be phenomenal. And I think that you're going to, you're going to have a lot of supermarkets just globally that are saying we've got, um, an underserved market out there who's changed the behavior as far as how they buy, how they snack. Millennials are notorious for snacking one more time a day than my generation. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a, that's no, oh, that's a 50% increase in snacking. Who, who doesn't want that? Um, and so, how, how, how consumers are eating has changed. And um, I think that we're actually able to work within those boundaries to mm-hmm. actually create a lot of opportunities for this rather monumental shift in um, eating behavior.
1: Right. I mean, it's just, um, it's all good. The timing couldn't be better. And I, I, I echo your snacking thing. I mean, we don't have snacks in our office. No one gets anything done suddenly <laughs> so um, i definitely i have uh um i have first hand knowledge of that over here based on uh, our employee base yeah. but um so those are the shifts that are happening and there's um as we as we kind of discussed earlier, we've got all this pent up demand people want this kind of food um and you have the innovation starting right it kind of um i think the first signs of Something new and different beginning to happen was when I heard of uh, Beyond Meat, when I heard of, uh, and then I think Hampton Creek was the next, and then it wasn't just uh, about uh, vegan products, it was suddenly about how this food was going to, the conversation started shifting to how this Mm -hmm. food was going to upgrade the food industry and and kind of get rid of what we've been dependent on. So now there's tons of VCs um, pouring money into um, food startups, food tech, whatever you want to call it. Majority of them are plant-based or vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the opportunity in the space? Let's talk about, um, try to separate the um, the hype from um, yeah. sure. some of the real realities. I mean, of yeah. course, you, you look at the big sectors, mm-hmm. plant-based milks currently are just, crushing it yeah. um obviously but also it's a very crowded space how many mm-hmm. new companies do you need really mm-hmm. um what is your general take give me your like high level overview of where do you see the most exciting things happening and where the most opportunity is
2: well let's let's start with the the big view which mm-hmm. is this is a trillion dollar industry it's 10,000 years old right? The only way that we've been able to make food more affordable is by exacting that pain on animals, the environment, our health. Like nobody is a winner in the food system. No one, not the humans, Mm -hmm. not the animals, not the environment. Everybody's losing that game. Um, I think that we're looking at a disruption in how we make our food. A lot of people say our food system is broken. It's not, it's just a highly, highly efficient operational system, but it's, but it's a crappy system. It's Mm -hmm. crappy for humans and animals and the environment. So, We look at um, the reality of animal agriculture, and the only way you can make it work better is by, quite frankly, changing the animal. And that model is just flawed across the board. So what really happened, I would say, around the time that Beyond Meat and Hampton Creek came out was Silicon Valley said, okay, Uber, that's what, a $35, $40 billion industry that they disrupted? Where's the fuss? Because we're talking about a trillion-dollar industry globally here, uh, and if you can't find a home in that as an entrepreneur, then you're not an entrepreneur. That's the truth. Uh, globally, you know, there's opportunities everywhere. So in the in the macro sense, macroeconomic sense, there's plenty of opportunity for anyone to find a home. And not everybody, I might add, needs to be a billion dollar brand. Um, there's there's cheese shops that are doing just great that are all vegan that are right here in Manhattan, right mm-hmm. here in Brooklyn, I should say. Uh, you know, the truth is there's plenty of ways of participating in that trillion dollar economy, um, and so I looked at that and and I think Silicon Valley is looking at it as well. Or certainly in the 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 investment world is looking at it and saying, maybe we should take a different look at this, right? We should look at um, if you're in business, your job is to, to serve somebody. It's usually the consumer, right? And so. You don't have to have a, a necessarily—you you can be fairly agnostic as to what the consumer wants. You need to serve that consumer. So if you're in the beef industry and consumer doesn't want beef, you're probably doing yourself a disservice by, by spending a lot of money convincing them to eat more beef when in fact you can actually give them what they want, which might be plant-based beef, right? So you're looking at a lot of these industries that are taking a shift in that and saying, well, we're, not, we're a protein company, we're not a beef company, we're not a meat company, we're mm-hmm. a protein company. Most of these these companies are doing this now. We've met with pretty much the biggest meat companies on the planet, and all of them are saying we need to take a different view of this. Um, these are companies that are really looking out over the next 50 to 100 years and not looking quarterly reports here. Um, and they're taking notice. So if they're taking notice, and I love working with strategic investors the most because they can take that long that mm-hmm. long view. Um if they're taking notice, then the early and C-stage investors that are the venture capital funds, they know that there's a home for their investments. And
1: why why do you think the meat industry is taking notice? Is it um, because they see the consumer demand for this, or they see that the products are better uh, and they're threatened by it, or mm-hmm. or number three, they see that their industry is kind of going to reach a cliff in, say, yep. in 30 years when yeah. we run out of land and water?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I don't I everybody has a different reason. I can tell you that ultimately they're looking at consumer behavior mm-hmm. right now. Uh, I think it'd be very hard pressed to say that a plant-based chicken is as good as chicken, mm-hmm. but it's getting there. So that parity matters and we're getting there. The truth is give us 10 more years and you know, keep in mind the Beyond Burger didn't exist 3 years ago, the Impossible Burger didn't exist 3 years ago. Those are they're, I, I, they're not even the same category as your 1980s veggie burger. They they're, they're just not. So so the truth is, if we are, let's say, a decade away from something that is, quite frankly, not 100% of what a burger is, but 120% of what a burger is, not only does it taste better and is better for you, uh, and it won't give you botulism, that's 120% better, right? So you're actually getting something that can actually be better than meat, better than beef, better than milk even. So particularly if you look at all of the things that can come out of it. I think if you look at the limits that... Uh, these industries have set on themselves not only the profit, there's very little profit there I might add you know these these are commodities so they have very little to work with um, they've got a consumer behavior that's changing and they're and they're off trend nobody wants to be off trend um, to to change that trend is very expensive so nobody has to do that it's better just to to buy into the trend to be honest um, and think about scaling you know let's say you're a company that wants to go into India what's what's easier to build what? 10,000 farms across India and try to become a global player uh, or to put in two or three plant-based meat plants and do the exact same thing. It's just Mm -hmm. simpler. So you streamline that. You look at your inputs and outputs. You look at the fluctuations um, that things like non-dairy cheese have versus regular cheese. You'll see price stability. It's just a lot of reasons to go there. All of those business decisions start adding up to the point where you say, why fight it? Why are we fighting this? Mm. Um, when, in fact, we can participate and participate very well. And so I think that's what you're looking at is industry, kind of reevaluating um, the role that they can play in this going forward. And the fact that they can be agnostic to the outcome. They, 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 what they can't be agnostic to is the consumer and what the consumer wants. Right. So
1: if you look at the opportunity again, where would you see... So you're saying it's in any industry, right? Any sort of sub-segment of uh, the food industry that involves animal products. So whether it is meat, dairy, seafood, um, and where do you think right now is the least, I wouldn't say the least amount of innovation rather, where innovation hasn't really started yet? Mm -hmm. Um, I know, for example, seafood is one that it seems to be a bit of an untapped space. Took the words right out of my mouth. So... um, and I know, for so let's talk about that because, you know, I'd love for the listener to understand how the work that you're doing is not just saying I'm going to support entrepreneurs and, um, and provide them with um, seed investment to get started and then hopefully help them grow and connect them with the right people. But you're also seeing where the white space is. And, you know, seafood, as I said, has been one of those white spaces. We've heard of um, beef and uh, chicken and, um, and of course, cheese, a lot of innovation. Uh, Still early stages, but seafood's one of them. What role have you played? Almost like a the way I think of what you're doing, is also sort of like an incubator. You are not just putting money, you're also just you're creating the companies that out of Sort of out of thin air at the moment. So yeah. I know Good Catch Foods is one of them and, mm-hmm. and Ocean Hugger Foods is another one. Yeah. How did that come about?
2: Uh, so the one, the one thing that I'll say about early and ste- seed stage investors is they tend to be entrepreneur driven. And so I'm an entrepreneur. I have no fear of starting a company from scratch. Like it's mechanical for me. I know kind of what to do, who to bring in. Uh, every company that gets started, the first thing I ask people to do is I want you to list all of your assets. And by assets, that means who do you know, what, who can influence you, do you have money, like what can you do what can you bring to the table and we started looking um new crop started looking at um assets that we had uh same with GFI who do we know that can actually help us launch a company when no one else is doing it and seafood was one of them right we knew that we could impact billions of animals with seafood 95% of all creatures eaten on this earth are seafood 40% of all protein is seafood uh, we eat three to four hundred sea creatures we eat 30 land animals or so uh, so if we're going to be investing in a space when it comes to impact seafood sure as heck better be on the on the menu uh, and so we decided that we would start looking into this space there just wasn't much in the way of players um, and, you know we had a lot of people focusing on chicken and beef and rightly so um, particularly out of the united states of course that's going to be front and center um, but for us we we just thought well If nobody else is going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves. I'm going to start from scratch, and I'm going to make it culinary-driven. So again, price, taste, and convenience, I always start with with taste. Mm -hmm. Because taste, anybody can make a great tasting product in their own kitchen. That doesn't mean you have a company yet. Uh, But if you can take that taste and scale it, Mm -hmm. now you've got your price worked out. And then if you have it scaled and the price is right, distribution will come and the consumers will buy it so that was the the basic thesis behind uh, good catch and the fish gods were looking down on us and uh we created tuna fish that was really phenomenal like it we weren't ready for how good it was going to be um and so we 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 knew that we were onto something pretty great uh but again that's one fish Right. It's not even a farmed fish. And so we knew we had a lot more to do. And so we've got a whole a whole queue of, of um, fish that we want to go after. We really want to focus on the factory farming of fish. Unfortunately, when it comes to ocean preservation, they are turning to the factory farming of fish as the solution. And we find that that's misguided. Yeah. So so uh, but within that, I mean, just think about three to four hundred sea creatures. Each one of those is an opportunity for somebody to do something about it. Right. So there's you want to look at innovation that's a good place to start. Um, Globally, I don't know what the world's population that eats seafood, but I'm guessing it's in the 60% range. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's anywhere in the world uh, that is a wonderful opportunity, not that many people are paying attention to it. So that's a big area of focus for us. And, uh, you know, you you mentioned that... um, we're not afraid of startups and we're not like we will start a company from scratch. We're doing another one right now. um, that's focusing on mushrooms. We're doing a a distribution company that will specifically focus on moving plant-based to areas that are underserved. Uh, we've got entire economies like Brazil where massive pent up demand is just sitting there waiting. Um, and we can take innovative products even out of the United States and move them down there. And so we're looking at different ways that we as investors, uh, can grease those wheels. Um, I might back up at least a little bit and say when Bruce and uh, Nick uh, asked me to get involved with uh, New Crop, literally the very first phone call I made was a, a gentleman named Chuck Lau who had a, a firm called Straight All Capital. Mm-hmm. And I knew we couldn't do this alone. And the truth is, I've always known that it could never be just us changing a a trillion-dollar economy. Uh, So I knew I had to get some other people around me, and and Chuck had just hired a woman named Lisa Freer to run that fund. And between the two of us, we started uh, something called the Glasswall Syndicate. That now has about 100 members of people who want to invest along the lines of the mission. Um, They're all... In for the long haul, they all are are looking at impact, and it's just been a, a this is you know two year old entity that is now like I said has about a hundred people that are paying right. attention. Before
1: I, I kind of shift to um, talking to the entrepreneur who's listening or the future entrepreneur who's listening to all of this and saying, how do I get in on this? And yeah. I believe in this, or I want to be, I want to of that trillion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to understand how do you see the um, your investment thesis evolving? Um, I'm glad you mentioned glass walls. I was going to bring it up. Um, so it's a sort of a community of investors almost mm-hmm. that is mission driven, very focused on, I'm assuming, only um, vegan plant-based products, That's nothing right, involving yeah. animals. Yeah. Where do you see that continue to grow as the big Silicon Valley VC firms are also also start pouring money in this space. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, um, the big food companies like Kellogg's and General Mills have their own mm-hmm. uh, investment arms. How do you see your role fitting in within that picture? You're very, you and the rest of the Glass Falls Collective are very yeah. mission driven to end animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. These other investors <clears throat> just want a piece of the pie. So well, where do you fit in yeah. as they pour more money and maybe have more resources? Do, you, do yeah. you see that as a challenge? Do you think your role is going to get diminished over time mm-hmm. as, you know, ve- as vegan food grows? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you grow <laughs> in yeah. your role?
2: well i mean our job is to to grease the wheels like we are we will we will regularly be the the first money and we'll work very hard to make sure it's sustained so there's two different sides of what you brought up there you know there's there's the, the kind of the silicon valley model which is let's put in some money let's step on the gas let's see what happens but they'll also be the first ones to turn the engine off and they'll do it very quickly it'll be overnight it's very painful strategic investors like us like the early ones we actually don't work that way we're not about stepping on the gas we're actually about hitting singles and doubles all day long creating some a a company that will sustain itself if the market turns tomorrow every company in my portfolio but for maybe one or two will actually survive like we, we we can actually turn those companies into something that you know either extending the runway or at least getting over a hurdle the strategic corporate investors they are crowdsourcing innovation they know it they love it it works for them there's no reason for pepsi to try to do things in-house when in fact on on a in a, on a rounding error in a quarterly report they can tuck in a very innovative company and grow it so for them they're they're delighted to wait and see we fill that role of making sure that they get to the wait and see point where they'll well they'll pay attention what is interesting is they're paying attention a lot sooner mm-hmm. now it used to be that they'd want to look at you when you're at 50 million in sales now they'll look at you when you're at 2 million in sales or zero in sales uh, they want to know how your expertise or your um, I, I, uh, intellectual property can help other things in their portfolio. Right. All right. And so in that sense, the, the model has really changed because of that, that shift between the venture capitalist model and the, and the corporate investor model. And we kind of fit in the middle there to make sure that they get that runway.
1: Right, and you definitely have a probably a place where you can work with both sides, right? You can you uh, yeah. you, you will help kickstart the company, uh, or maybe their first round, the um, their seed stage. Uh, eventually, help them get maybe an institutional round through a big Silicon Valley VC, mm-hmm. and then depending on what that company's goals are, they could uh, end up um, selling to That's f- right. one of the corporate investors.
2: Yeah, so I try um, to I try to put together. When I look at an investment, I want to know what the funding plan is like. The worst mm-hmm. thing that an investor can do is bridge to nowhere, and we and a lot do that. Yeah. They, like, they think, well, we'll put the money in, and then money will just show up later. I never count on that. I've, I've been through three economic disasters in my life, and I don't... I know I know that I don't want to go through the next one and I don't know when it's coming but it will but I want to make sure that these companies are going to survive. Sustainable a sustainable investment is what I is actually the mission that I'm working on. It's not a return on investments to make sure that these companies stick around. So um, I got off topic. What do I
1: um, I guess my point was do you work together with this entire are you oh, part yes, of a bigger yes. ecosystem?
2: Yeah, so so the ecosystem is I look at um, as soon as possible, taking this from the seed round to maybe a venture capitalist or two, or a strategic, I always want a strategic to come in sooner rather than later. What is fascinating is how soon the That's strategics knock yeah. on our door. It like I Literally, I would think maybe in the old days it would have been series C or D. Now it's A. Sometimes it's before that. And even the smallest companies, these massive billion-dollar companies are asking to participate. And it is it is phenomenal because it actually cuts out the riffraff and some of the trouble that Silicon Valley can bring to the equation. Silicon Valley, that model is somewhat flawed and that there can be a lot of manipulation that goes on there where the strategics don't really think about it. You know, for them, this is pretty straightforward. They know their path. They know what they bring to the table. It's always something more than money. And we look at them for exactly what they bring, which is usually A major purchasing contract, or a major production facility, or um, uh, distribution, and we use that as part of the investment model.
1: Yeah, and having the strategic coming in so early is almost a sign that we've already um, reached that point where that this is taking off. Yeah. Uh, Right. So this is an. So I think this is an important point for those that may be concerned that getting investment in your beloved food company is a problem Mm -hmm. um, especially if it's coming from someone like Tyson or Cargill or who knows what or or getting a big Silicon Valley investor in is a problem Uh, the reason what the explanation you just gave tells us why it's not a problem because Mm -hmm. the wheels are already turning we're already on that train where everyone sees plant-based slash vegan food as the opportunity to to disrupt that trillion dollar industry yeah and doesn't matter who owns um, the brand and who owns the product. Vegan food is literally going to be part of this future that we're looking at. Vegan slash clean meat and other cultured. That's products. right.
2: I can tell you that the animals don't care who owns a company. They don't care. And so if you look at who the actual stakeholders are, where that check comes from doesn't matter. As long as at the end of the day, you're you're affecting change that's what we focus on so i don't want to get caught get caught up in kind of the maniacal side of it and, and and who should be investing in what i can tell you i've been in this in this space now for 15 years paying attention to it and i fought for years the people now that are some of my biggest allies and they've been exceed just exceptionally helpful um, and their vision is our vision like we our missions are aligned now. They really do want to serve their consumers. Doesn't mean that everything that these companies do in the background is is pure. We all know that. Mm-hmm. It's not. But it doesn't have to come at the expense of actually helping these companies grow to be very very big and and help a lot of stakeholders in the process. And so far that has been just it's been refreshing if nothing else because I don't need to battle the miseries of the world on top of the markets, on top of Industry, when in fact uh, we're actually able to collaborate in a way we've never been able to before,
1: right? And you know, you mentioned this earlier too. You don't have to get investment if you don't want to. That's that's not that's right. the only path. Uh, that's right. For making an impact, you can start yep. a vegan cheese shop and, and love be, it and love it and make a yep. huge impact in your community. That's right. Or you can uh, grow slowly and become a follow your heart or tofurkey so and true. stay independent and do your own thing and yep. grow to the point where now they they took. 40 years, but they're the point where they can help others.
2: Well, and um, they had fun in the process. I mean, let's not just think that the only fun is when you when you cash your check when you sell your company. I mean, yeah. the fact is, it's really fun to own a company. It's really fun to grow. It's really mm-hmm. it's wonderful experience to have the family of your workers. Uh, so don't discount it as though the only play is a financial one, because it never is. You know, the, the truth is Owning a business is a wonderful thing to be able to do, and if you have the talent mm-hmm. to do that, don't get caught up on what the financing structure is. What what really matters is: are you building something that's great? Are you building a legacy that's fun for you, and it and actually creates a really good quality of life? And that's right. ultimately what you want in your life: yeah. good quality.
1: Yeah. I think that's a good segue into my to the part I want to get to, which is: so, who should pitch to a New Crop Capital? Mm -hmm. Um, what kind of companies are you looking for? What kind of startup founders are you looking for? What kind of products, Mm -hmm. um, are hot now that may change tomorrow, but you know, here we are end of 2017, um, early 2018, depending on when this comes out. Um, and, um, yeah, tell us if I want to start a food company tomorrow, maybe I do. Um, what should I look, what, what, what should I do before I even write to you?
2: Well, first of all, I'll tell you that. Every venture capital fund has a mandate and our mandate is very clear. We only invest in direct plant-based replacements to meat, dairy, eggs, and seafood or the distribution thereof. So if you're a cricket farmer or a vertical farmer or a restaurant, we're not, that's not for us. Um, and I get people every day asking me to invest in things like cricket farms. Plant-based
1: uh, and cultured or, or just plant-based?
2: Oh sorry, and we do clean meat. Okay. Right. So right. So um the, that's that's the area we do. And we actually kind of divide those into two um, pretty clear paths. They're really parallel paths. Um we don't there's not there's not a huge universe of clean meat companies out there. Yeah. And there won't be. You know, the truth is, um hopefully there will be in the future, but right now those 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 all that groundwork is being laid. And my guess is, you know, give us maybe another twenty or thirty years, there might be thousands, but at the moment Uh, there's only five or six and we help all of them, uh, because it's a big undertaking. Mm -hmm. Everything else, um, you know, again, we are laser focused. It helps us be good at what we do. If we start getting distracted and we take those blinders off, Next thing you know, I'm in a, re- in a restaurant business and it's sucking the life out of me. As I tell people, my only way I invest in restaurants is through their menu um, because <laughs> it's, it's really time-consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can be very local, um, and we're trying to solve global issues, and so we need to stay focused on that. So first of all, appreciate who it is you're pitching to. Uh, inside the Glass Wall Syndicate, it actually goes quite a bit broader, right? And so there are people in there. The nice thing about um, Glass Walls is that uh, – there could be lots of people who are actually are looking for a local restaurant in Portland. Great. I got one for you, you know? And so, uh, the truth is, uh, that's a good place to take a project. If you want to, if you want to have it uh, be looked at, um, it has to have an impact, you know, it has to come from a a place of impact. Um, and uh, you'll find a receptive audience there. So, uh, the other thing that we look for, um, I've always liked partnerships. I've always had partnerships. I'm, I'm somebody who, um, performs better when i'm answering to somebody else there's a certain accountability that comes with that and there's actually plenty of accelerators that require the same thing it's very hard to get into um, places like um, sos ventures uh, in IndieBio unless you have a partner with you matter of fact i don't think they'll even take you uh, they want that partnership in there so we do like that partnership model uh it's two minds are better than one and um there's also that accountability that comes with it so we like that And we'd like people to have a good understanding of what their assets are and why it is they think that they will succeed and why we should believe that they'll succeed as well. Uh, We will then take that and overlay the assets that we bring to it and so that we can say your assets plus our assets create a great opportunity. And sometimes that'll be something that we have in-house. Sometimes it'll be something that is, okay, I'm going to bring in this third partner. And when they come in, it actually knocks it out of the park. And that happens most of the time, actually. Uh, We'll try to take a little nugget, bring in another partner or find another partner and between the three of us we make something great and that that um, we're willing to do that work to get it there.
1: And depending on obviously the the stage at which the company is coming in mostly in your case it's early stage where do you think they need the most amount of help um, based on your portfolio right
2: now? Yeah, I mean there's, there's I think people generally think that starting a business is pretty straightforward and that you follow a certain set of rules and it all happens but the truth is that every entrepreneur is simultaneously a lawyer and an insurance agent and an hr expert and a plumber um and you name it they have to bring all these things to the table they don't know that so when i was at the when i was at um uh, the humane society and actually then at the good food institute i served as the entrepreneur residence and my job where was there to mentor and i'm a jack of all trades right so i i've Done it all. Like I've I've been in every sticky situation in almost every industry. uh, At this point, I've been doing this. I'm 50 now, and I I I started my first business when I was 12. So I've kind of gone through the spectrum of crap that can happen to an entrepreneur. Uh, It helps to have that perspective because you never quite know what's coming to you. Sometimes it's just how do I figure out how to make payroll, and I and there's things that we can do to make sure that that gets done. So those are the sticky things that happen. That you don't necessarily see coming and you think that if you've taken institutional capital that's the end of the game and it'll be easy from here and it just isn't it's very hard to raise money it's very hard to keep that going while running a business uh, it takes a long time to close around uh, as as people who manage money we have a fiduciary duty to that to those investors or mm-hmm. to that trust in my case um, and so we have to follow for certain protocols to make sure that we're protecting those assets um, and so that always takes a little bit longer than people think but you know stick with it you know it takes a lot of work to get over that hurdle and if you can do it uh, the rewards are pretty great at the back end
1: yeah in terms of products what do you think are ones you're most excited about in terms of uh, investment potential
2: well we have a lot of areas if you if you look at food um which is all i look at um and distribution i would add um you know the truth is you can anywhere where we're not, not quite hitting the mark there's an opportunity and you know dairy isn't quite there yet uh cheese isn't quite there yet um we've got meat that isn't there yet but also how it's packaged how it's made uh there's pockets of the world where people don't even know what the word vegan is and they don't they've never ever even their whole life eaten a plant-based meat mm-hmm. um those are opportunities you know and in their pockets of them everywhere like i said it's a trillion dollar industry um if you want to really swing for the fences there's other places you can go right there are there are things that you could say yes you know we have you know good dot in india that was a swinging for the fences move and it worked you know that's a plant-based uh chicken and mutton that is just going to kill it there and it's going to be perfect and uh we've got industry distribution like the the way that that's playing out i would have never imagined that that could have happened we put fifty thousand dollars into that investment just to see what would happen, and mm-hmm. the co-founder, who's a, a good friend of ours now, uh, she just she just did it right, and now it's just it's just taking off. And so, you know, you look at a, a market that's just, quite frankly, almost too big to even fathom. But you just start small. Don't overthink it. Go in. Try to run a good business. Learn the basics of business, and um, stick to the plan. And, and you know, the truth is, uh, the number one rule with any, launching any business is be prepared to pivot. You'd have to be agile. Right. And, I, and I tell people uh, there's a 100% chance of two things. Your business plan is wrong and your valuation is wrong <laughs> every single time. Uh, investors have a way of correcting valuation. Um, you think your company's worth $10 million, I think it's $1 million. We have a way of fixing that in our term sheet that protects everybody. Um, your business plan is always wrong and we help you adjust that along the way. What I don't like is is investors who try to make, um, entrepreneurs stick to a plan when they know better. Mm. The entrepreneurs generally know a lot more about what to do next than the investors do. Investors think they know. So I like to give the, uh, the entrepreneurs a little room to move around. Right. And you
1: mentioned, um, you know, beyond meat and Ethan being a great example of someone who's, who's done it well so far. Um, not that it's always been easy or simple and not that they've not had their own share of problems. Yep. Who else would you say amongst uh, your portfolio companies or maybe even beyond that in the space? Oh, who do you look at has has sort of faced the challenges and managed to still come out of it better? Um mm-hmm. Miyoko's, I'm just going to throw that in there. Sure. I, I, based on what I've seen Miyoko do, it's just an amazing story. Yeah, Too much demand, couldn't, yeah. <laughs> didn't prepare for it uh, and then had to learn some hard lessons along yeah. the way. Um yeah. But is now hopefully going to be in a much better place with the new facility going forward. Who else out there is doing something innovative, cool, who is willing to, who has a great product firstly, but is willing to grow and learn and change and evolve and is going to be with us 5, 10, 20 years down the line? What's your prediction?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, there's, there's people who run good businesses and I like the way they run them and they, and they know what they're in for Like purple carrots is a good example. You know, I, when I first went to meet with them, you know, I used to be in the medical waste business and that was all boxes. And those boxes look very similar to purple carrots boxes. And I went there and, and there was Andy Levitt. And I said, Andy, 1400 boxes a week you're doing right now. Tell me what your Sunday nights are like. And he goes, Oh, Chris, I put my kids to bed and I just go and I put together boxes. And I'm like, yes, now you know what logistics is all about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you learn that along the way. And I love entrepreneurs who just kind of, by the bootstraps, they pull it up and they do it. We call what's above the line and what's below the line. And the consumer sees what's above the line, which is your product that comes out. What goes on below the line can be a lot of scrappiness. And I love the good entrepreneur that's a scrapper. Uh, is a great example of that. She just worked really, really hard to make sure her products came out um, exactly what the consumer wanted so I like I love companies like that day I think really did it well you know they just they just kept hitting doubles hitting doubles and then crushed it Um, but it really changed the whole the whole space for us thankfully so I think that they did a really good job field roast is another good example where they continued to innovate over and over Tofurky innovates over and over Uh, you don't stick with one product and hope hope that it does well the problem that happened with the mergers and acquisitions up until 2006 was these companies were acquired as though they were finished products, mm. and the consumers never finished. The consumer's palate is always changing. The consumer's palate is always expecting more, uh, and if you don't deliver it, somebody's going to come in and eat your lunch. And that was that happened, right? And it will continue to happen. Um, as as investors in this space, we require it. We love it because that type of innovation is actually what creates new companies and great products. And as somebody who loves to consume vegan food, mm. uh, for me. It's a
1: home run. Yeah. What's your prediction for the short term, um, when it comes to some of these um, companies that have now been around for four or five years, uh, with all the the money pouring in into uh, these foods, a lot of them are eventually going to get acquired within yeah. this time frame. Do you see it's going to be this gold rush in the next four or five years, and then we're going to things are going to settle down again mm-hmm. as some of these companies now become part of um, larger yeah.
2: Well, there's a cycle here. You know, venture capital funds have a lifespan, mm-hmm. and so these companies will have to be sold because those those funds have to liquidate, All right? So you're going to see M A starting to pick up. It's happening now, right? And so you're looking at day and field roast and transactions like that. That's going to start happening. Some of those are tied to the fact that people have been in it for a long time, or that it's a good time to sell. Um, you know, the truth is, um, I don't. It's it's going to be very hard to predict how that. Plays out really over the next five years. I entrepreneurs will hate me saying this, uh, but I really like entrepreneurs who struggle with very tight fiscal constraint, which means they're underfunded. Mm-hmm. They learn so much during that period. I've had to go through it. I hate it. it's the worst time of my life trying to make payrolls. But you can't believe how good of a business person you come when you're trying to struggle to make a payroll. Like it's one of the most um, defining moments of your life is when you're about to let down your whole staff, right? Mm-hmm. And so how you rise up for that is really important. I think one of the things that has happened, um, certainly in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, is that the frothiness and the funds that are in there have created some discipline that's been problematic. And so I think that um, ultimately I look for companies that are really good with that discipline. And that's why I really shepherd them through the, the seed and early stage to make sure that those that discipline is in place. So when the big checks come in, they still continue that t- same type of mindset.
1: Great. And long term, how do you see this sort of... Ter- playing out in the next 30 years? I mean, I always give that at 2050. What's your vision yeah. for the world you want to help create or the food system that you want to help create in the year 2050? This is a very early stage of w- what's happening right now. Hopefully, that trillion-dollar industry is going to be disrupted, but how yeah. do you see it?
2: It's funny. As I was walking here today, and I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I was I was thinking, when will this no longer be a problem? Right. And I've been vegan for 15 years, like I said, and I kept thinking, well, maybe in twenty, thirty, maybe it's fifty years. And I thought, this is a ten thousand year old industry. I'm trying to change. Why? Why the rush? You know, the truth is, for me, um, I just want it. I want to eat really, really well and not have to think about it, right? And so, um, I believe we're going to get there. I think give us a decade, we're going to have phenomenal products. From there, it isn't an issue of whether or not those those products can displace animal agriculture. It's whether or not. Uh, we can produce enough to do it because mm-hmm. I think the products will be there from there. It's really about um, growing. Cause again, we we've been building this industry for a long time, really since, if you think about just the last probably 75 years since world war II, you could say um, we're looking at the expansion of factory farming in a way that we never thought would exist. And here we are trying to change that in a couple of years, it's not going to happen. So give us another, I'd say 50 to 70 years and you're going to look at a completely different world. But even in the middle there, you're looking at 20, 30 years where consumers will feel no pain. Right. We will be able to eat anything we want without having to sacrifice, sacrifice our, our desires. So it was what we aspire to. I aspire to eat... Pretty much watermelon and everything bagels every day. (laughs) Uh, But the truth is, we eat what's in front of us. We eat what's convenient. Uh, If I'm on an airplane and all I have that's vegan is Pringles, I'm going to eat Pringles, you Mm -hmm. know, Uh, and I'm not happy about it, but I do it. Um, I think what we're going to see in the next 20, 30 years is that the availability of these foods is going to be commonplace. Uh, It will be everywhere. We'll all be happy. Yeah.
1: I think in the last 50 years, we've been focused on producing the most amount of food for the the lowest possible cost and i think in the next 50 years hopefully the focus is going to be on producing the best quality of food that we can get at you know at the best price and find it everywhere hopefully
2: yeah well i think if you look at the ingredients and the inputs that go into these products you know there's a lot of subsidies that make that make meat as Mm -hmm. low as it is and those subsidies come in weird ways they can come from um being able to to charge lower wages for farms as an example right so those things exist uh, there will come a shift where where people who grow broccoli will get those subsidies <laughs> uh, and i and i do believe that ultimately right now we're 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 entering an age where consumers are being a lot more discerning and that's because of freedom of imp- that's the information right that's that's yeah. transparency and I think that transparency is creating that demand. It will create that shift. And sooner or later, you'll start seeing industries realizing, hey, if I want to get good protein, it doesn't have to come from cows. You know, that was, that, was, that was a decision that was made during World War II. Yeah. That problem is rippling through us in a rat in, in our entire society in a rather problematic way and i think that we could have that same thing going in reverse if we just shift our mindset a little bit and say look let's let's be a little healthier what what's what's out there what are as a, as a society what are our assets that we can bring to actually solve some of these problems now that these industries are getting behind that they can actually make just make a monumental change in, in how society consumes food for the better
1: well i'll end on that note this has uh been a lot of fun um i think we'll definitely have you back to uh keep um up to date on what's happening in uh, the world of plant-based foods or vegan foods or clean meat or cultured foods whatever you want to call it yep. um and uh, continue telling the story of how this disruption of the trillion dollar uh, horrible animal agriculture industry is is kind of playing out so thank you chris this That's is my
2: pleasure glad to glad to be here